Thank you, choir. What great songs to remind us of God's love, which is going to help us as we walk through the topic this morning. And as we open God's Word together, let us, let's go to Him in prayer. God, we recognize this as Your Word and we want to submit ourselves to it. Uh, we ask that You would, um, like the hymn writer uh, wrote, uh, let us not hide from Thee. Let us be open and honest and open to uh, what You want to teach us this morning. And we trust You'll do that. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, last week we started a series on the seven deadly sins. And I, I, I tried to, in the midst of that discouraging title, encourage you and say, we're going to, you know, there is hope in the midst of this uh, despicable list here. So, last week we looked at pride. And pride is the mother of all sins because pride at its core is a refusal to submit ourselves to God. And so once you turn from God or... You could look at it like this. Once you unhook yourself from God, it's a whole lot easier to do all these other types of sinning, you might say, uh, once you unhook yourself from God. So pride is the mother of all sins in that it says, I don't need God. I want to do my own thing. And so therefore, it makes us more prone to do other things. Sin is less restrained in our life when we turn away from God. And so this morning... We want to talk about the sin of lust. Now, to begin with, uh, to kind of set the, the tone or set the frame for you, um, I think we all agree that we have different types of appetites. For example, uh, you're probably, over the next course of you know, 30 minutes or so, you're probably going to get hungry, or at least some point today you're going to get hungry. We all have these appetites. And we know all these appetites are not bad in and of themselves. And we're made this way to be a dependent you know, human being. We, de- we depend on food, water, and ultimately we depend on God. And so we have these appetites. And we have other appetites as well. And possessing these appetites is not a bad thing. And I think we'd also agree that we all... To some degree or the other, we all have principles or guidelines to uh, guide our appetites. So whether it's food or we're going to dive into sexuality this morning, whatever that appetite is, that instinct, so to speak, we all have principles uh, to guide us. And some of us are guided by what God says in His Word. Some of us are guided by the culture, tradition, uh, You know, whatever it may be, there's something that guides you. You know, what may guide you to eat a certain thing may be, you know, whether you like it or not, or how hungry you are, or whatever it may be, but you're probably not going to grab the hymnal and start eating it, right? So there's some parameter here of what you will and will not eat, and it's the same thing with other appetites. We all have it, whether you're a Christian or not, we all have some parameter, even though you may look at some folks and say, well, they they don't seem to have any parameters on here, but they do. Everybody has some type of guideline that they follow to channel their appetites, these these God-given appetites, whether it be uh, appetite for food or love, companionship, or sex itself. And so, like I said, possessing these appetites are not bad, but what we want to consider is, how are these appetites guided? How do we guide these appetites? How do we seek to satisfy these appetites? 
And so when it comes to sexuality, it's very easy for us, even those who follow Jesus, to have an ungodly view as to how this appetite should be guided. And so as we look at God's Word together, I want to communicate two main truths this morning. The first one is I want to define lust. What is it according to the Scripture? What is lust? And then the second truth I want to communicate is how do we deal with lust? How do we disarm lust and pursue God's design? So first let's let's define lust. And there are two parts to the definition that we find in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. And we see the first part of the definition is given in verse 3. And so if you look at that with me, this is what Paul writes. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And it's that verse 5 I really want to focus in on here as we seek to define what lust is. Because what Paul does is Paul links lust with a lack of knowledge of God. And it's not simply, I don't know enough about God, so I'm going to be lustful. That's not, that's not what I'm saying here. But I think what Paul's saying is that, that lust is a sexual desire that is unhooked from a relationship with God. You know, all these sins are going to be tied to pride in some way. In other words, lust is a way that I, it's trying to fulfill my sexual appetite apart from God's design. So you're unhooked from God, seeking to satisfy your appetite, your sexual appetite, apart from God's design. That's, that's lust. And so... God's design throughout the Scripture, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this this morning, but as you read through the Scripture, we see that God's design is that your sexual appetite be satisfied in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. You know, that's, that's the context in which God has given us for this appetite to be expressed and exercised. Now, just a small little tangent here. That doesn't mean that everyone will exercise this appetite. And there will be, even for everyone, there are seasons of life in which you don't exercise that appetite or seek to satisfy it. Okay? Because some people will remain single all their lives, and so they are to guide it according to God's design, which means that you, know, you do not exercise this. And even if you're in a relationship with someone, you should not exercise uh, your sexual appetite or, you know, with that other person unless you are married. And so that's God's design. And so, like I mentioned earlier, sexuality is not bad. I mean, it was given by God. Sexual appetite is a good thing. And as Christians, we should never try to say that to have that type of desire is a bad thing. It's not. It's good. It was actually given to man and woman before the fall of man, before sin entered the world. One of the first things that God told the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, is to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. <laughs> How do you think that's going to happen? You know, fill the earth. That's, uh, be fruitful, multiply. So, we know it's a good thing. God has given it to us. Um, but, lust 
is different than just a healthy sexual appetite. What lust is, is seeking to satisfy the appetite outside of God's design. In other words, you know, it kind of ties in with pride here, that I'm going to exercise it in any way I see fit. It puts me kind of on the throne, so to speak, and determine, I determine what's good and right and true, and that's what I'll do. And so, the first thing we see here is that lust un, is unhooked from the knowledge of God. And it says, I will satisfy this desire any way I see fit. And that's the message of our culture. Whereas in verse 7, look with me at verse 7. This is what Paul says. He says, for God has not called us. And he's talking to Christians here. You know, Christians, you that are in Christ. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. This is what God is calling you to. This is what he's saying. This is what's good and right for you. This is what I want for you. So God is calling people to pursue His design, where our, whereas our culture is calling us to hedonism. And hedonism is just simply a fancy word that means, hey, you do whatever feels good. Whatever it is that feels good, do it. Whatever you think is fine. In other words, don't tell me what I should be doing behind closed doors. You know, As long as I'm not hurting anybody, as far as violently, I should be able to do whatever I want. Well, God says, no, I'm calling you to purity. I'm calling you to sexual purity, which means submitting to His design. Whereas our culture is calling us to a kind of whatever feels good philosophy. And even our own passion in our own hearts often uh, calls us not to submit to God, but rather to serve ourselves. Right? And so... Not only do we have to deal with external influence, but we also have this inside of us, of us all. This desire to you know, do what I want rather than submit myself to what God wants for me. And so we see the first part of the definition of lust is a disregard for God. And we see that, I believe it's in verse um, 7 and 8, that we are not just disregarding people, but we disregard God Himself when we seek to go out of His design. The second part of the definition of lust is that it dishonors others. Look at verses 3 through 6. Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. And so lust not only disregards God, but it also dishonors others. It also wrongs others. And this is what lust pretty much says. Okay? It says this. I want what you can give me, but I really don't want you. I mean, that's, that's what lust says. I want what you can give me, but I really don't want you. That's why it's outside of God's design. Because God's design is when we exercise our sexuality, we are to do so in the covenant of marriage because we're saying, I, am, I want all of you until the day I die. I, mean, I want all of you. I want to give myself to you. I want all of you, not just what you can give me. And so anything that um, 
moves out of that design is this kind of falls into this you know, sexual immorality, lust, trying to seek uh, the other person out as a commodity. You know, something I can just enjoy and take in for my own pleasure. And so it treats someone uh, almost like a product. It's kind of like a, a, a wildfire. Lust is like a wildfire. I mentioned I was, you know, burning stuff this weekend trading some fires and roasting marshmallows. But one thing about a fire is that it's never satisfying. You notice that? Like a wildfire. When does the wildfire say, you know, I've had enough fuel. Don't put any more fuel on me. i got plenty. It never says that. It will constantly consume. It's never satisfying. The more fuel you put on it, the bigger it gets and the more it wants. It never says, you know, time out. That's enough logs, I'm good. You know, because it knows if you keep fuel from me, I will die. And so the wildfire continues to um, consume. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, everyone knows that the sexual appetite, like our other appetite, grows by indulgence. And this is where lust is, you know, you know takes us down this path of well just try this but we're never completely satisfied with that and so we have to try more and more and it's never enough and it consumes it continues to consume and so lust is dangerous in that it not only rebels against God but it dishonors people you know it's not a way to love another person. It objectifies the other person. Um, And so it's wanting just to take pleasure for myself. John Piper sums up the definition of lust this way. He says, lust is sexual desire that dishonors its object and disregards God. I think this is just a great way to sum it up. It's a very concise definition. Lust is sexual desire that dishonors its object and disregards God. And now is the million dollar question. And that is, what do we do about that? (laughs) Because you're probably sitting there, at some degree or the other, you know you deal with this. And so you say, well, Ron, what do I need to do? How do I... How do I deal with this appetite? How do I guide it in a godly way? How do I deal with lust? And this leads us to the second truth I want to communicate. And that is, lust needs to be disarmed. It needs to be disarmed. And like I mentioned earlier, and that is, sexual desire is not bad, but lust is, and it needs to be disarmed. You know, in the 50s, when you had this uh, growing, I guess, uh, development of nuclear weapons, biological, chemical weapons. Uh, an organization was formed called the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. And uh, since, since, the, since the 1950s, since 1957, when it was created, it has sought to, especially in the UK, it tried to disarm countries of their nuclear weapons. And what's interesting is, it's not that they necessarily think nuclear processes or biological or chemical processes are bad, 
But using them as weapons is bad. <laughs> so they're saying we don't need to use them as weapons. You know, if you, maybe it's okay to do a nuclear, I mean, a chemical process over here to help come up with a type of medicine that helps fight disease, but I don't want you to use a chemical agent and use it as a bomb on someone. And so they seek to disarm countries from these types of weapons. And so in a similar way, sexuality is not bad, but the way we use it sometimes is, and therefore we need to disarm that usage of that appetite that God has given us. And so if we're going to please God, like he talks about in Thessalonians here, if we're going to please God with our sexuality and honor others, we need to disarm lust. And so here's what I think we need to do. There's one thing that must happen. We must, there's one thing that absolutely must happen if we're going to please God in this area and any area of our lives. There's one thing that must happen. And then there are several helpful things that can help uh, disarm lust after this first thing, this first major um, shift happens in your life. So the first thing that we need to do to disarm lust is we need to turn to Christ. Because until we turn to Christ, all we're doing is, as one writer put it, you know, all we're doing is taking down the spider webs, but we're never killing the spider. We're just taking down webs. And the next day, guess what? There's another web. So we take that one down. But we never kill the spider. Until you come to Christ, the spider will be alive and well. In other words, you will never please God apart from Christ. And so the first thing that must happen is conversion. And what that simply means is there's a shifting that I'm not, no longer desiring to do what, just what I want to do or what someone else wants me to do or my culture wants me to do, but I actually want to do what God wants me to do because look what He's done for me in Christ. And when you come to Christ and you ask Him to forgive you of your sin, the way you have tried to live your life apart from God, forgive me of that and I want to embrace this new life you have for me that you promised me in Christ then what happens is we begin to want to live for Christ. And then what we find is, that's actually the way we ought to live. That's how God's made us to live. And so when we follow His direction, it's for our own good. And so the first thing that needs to happen is that we need to come to Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 says, Finally then, brothers... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you're doing that you do so more and more. And so Paul's saying, here's some, here's some ways I want, you need to walk in order to please God, but you can't do it apart from Jesus. I mean, Jesus has to be uh, preeminent in your life. You know, He needs to be your Savior, your Lord, if you're ever going to seek to please God. So the only way for us to please the Father, God the Father, is to be found in the One in whom the Father has said, in you I am well pleased. And He's only said that about one person, and that's Jesus Christ. And so in Him, we have the Father's pleasure. And now we are able to now walk 
in a manner worthy of what God has called us to. And so once that has happened, that's the main thing. Without that, it's just you're just behavior modification, taking down the spider whip, okay? And I'm not saying that that doesn't always work. You may find people that are very moral, that they don't do some things like other people do sexually, but all they're doing is taking down the webs. They never kill the spider. Only Christ can kill the spider and shift our desires to want to actually please God more than we want to just please our appetite at the moment. So once that happens, there are some other uh, helpful things that we can do to disarm lust. One is, um, there's this internal control that uh, takes place. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So there's a sense in which, okay, if you're in Christ, you can actually control this. There, you can abstain from certain things. You can guide it. You can guide your appetite. Just like, you know, you don't eat the hymn book. You, you know, you can guide this appetite to a more healthy path. And the other verse in verse 4 says this. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality, verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Now you may say, well, run it. You know, control and abstaining. That almost, are you, you kind of getting legalistic on me? No, listen. Legalism, legalism is about earning God's favor. But salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone uh, says absolutely nothing in contradiction to effort. We are saved by grace. But yet we are to control ourselves, abstain from certain things, pursue certain things. That's part of the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. Being able to channel the God-given appetites and passions we have to a godly direction. That is evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so salvation by grace is not against effort, it's just against earning. You cannot earn your salvation. By becoming sexually pure. But, if you are in Christ, you can control your sexuality and guide it based on God's word, God's design. Okay? And so, in Christ, there becomes this internal desire to honor God and honor others. You know, in Christ, we begin to see God as He is and we begin to see others as they are. And we want to love others. And so, God wants us to abstain from certain things, control this appetite, channel it in a healthy way. And the next thing that we can do that helps us to kind of keep this in check is an external control. So you have an internal internal control and then this external control. I was watching this uh, show a few weeks ago. (laughs) This show is about these guys that um, repossess airplanes. You all seen this? <laughs> it's, it's pretty fascinating. These guys will like break into landing strips and you know someone will land this plane they haven't you know 
been paying the payments on for like six months. They'll land the plane. They'll go in to check the records and whatnot. They'll jump the fence, run to the airstrip, check out everything, get in and take off with the plane. I'm thinking, this is, this is crazy. But I'll keep watching it. And uh, there was this one guy, he gets in this plane in like, um, it seemed like it was in, in one of the um, you know, Central American countries. They have been Haiti or something like that. And um, he, he gets this plane and he's flying it back to Florida. Okay? And you know, they don't know anything about this plane except for, okay, this is the type of plane it is, this is the model number, serial number, whatever. And, but you know, they've never flown this plane before, so they don't know what the history of this plane is. They jump in the plane, they do their little diagnostics, you know, quickly because they're stealing the plane legally. And um, he gets in the plane and he's flying. You know, over the ocean into Florida. And as he's flying at night, by the way, okay, it's nighttime, everything's pitch black dark. All the lights in the plane go out. Because he had to jump start the plane to get it started on the runway. So the battery was low. Jump starts the plane. He's flying over the ocean, going to Florida. All the lights go out. And I'm thinking, obviously it turns out well because we have footage. You know, we we have, but in the moment, it's like watching the movie Titanic. You're like, whoa, what's going to happen? Oh, I know what's going to happen. They they do make it or they don't make it, but they made it. But the thing is, everything went blank. And he's, he's been flying for 40 years and he's explaining to everybody, you know, the only thing you can do, you cannot feel whether you are, you know, right side up, upside down, you're going down. You can't discern that through your feelings. You have to depend on these certain instruments on your panel that even operate if the, all the electricity goes out. There are these certain instruments that still work. And so, you know, they're trying to get a light on. Thankfully, like the camera has a light on it. So he's shining it down there uh, on the instrument panel. And so he's able to keep the plane level. And as I was watching that and as I was preparing this lesson, I thought, you know... Um, that's what I need, and I, that's probably what you need too. We need some external controls, you know, to kind of keep us in check and let us know we're moving in the right directions. Because sometimes, I know if you're like me, I can get blinded or disoriented if I'm depending on my own desires. That's why I need others to keep me in check and say, Hey, Ron, you know, you got this plane turned upside down. You need to, you need to turn it to the right a little bit here. You, we need some external checks to make sure that we're pursuing what God wants us to pursue. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5, 27-30. He gives us some, some insight here as far as how to deal with our desires. Matthew 5, 27-30, He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And ladies, you can just... Flip that around, and it's the same with you all. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Which I think we'd all agree. It's better to go one-eyed into heaven than two-eyed into hell. But... Is Jesus saying we literally need to like, stick a knife through our eyeball? I don't think so. 
I don't think so. And this is why. Because even if you, you know, say you lust twice, you poke out both eyes. Well, you still got a brain that has a pretty good memory. And so I think this is just uh, an extreme way of saying you need to try to cut off whatever's triggering the sin. Okay, you need some external controls. You need to pay attention to those things that won't take you down this path. And for each of you, it may be something different. I'm not sure what it is for you. But I want to give you a few triggers that may uh, take you down this path and, and how, how you can perhaps uh, put some external controls on to help you move toward uh, godly sexuality. This may mean, first of all, I think this is probably one of the helpful, most helpful things. Find someone who's walking with the Lord that you trust to hold you accountable. Just to ask you how you're doing. You can confide in them. If you know an area of your life that you really are struggling with uh, as it relates to uh, your sexual appetite um, or lust, you could talk to them. Tell them what you're dealing with. And, and ask them, will you pray for me? And then will you ask me how I'm doing? You know, just the external controls here that are going to help me move along. In my walk with the Lord. This may mean, like in your home, if you have a computer, maybe putting your computer in a more public space in your home, in the family room or something like that. Um, installing software. There's a great software called uh, Covenant Eyes. And there are others as well. That What they do is they will, you can install it on your computer and then you can uh, give another person access to it and it will send that other person a report of all the sites you visit. Because, you know, if you look at this, and you may say, well, Ron, you know, is this really a big deal? When Jesus says, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Because if you don't, you're going to hell. <laughs> That's pretty strong. That means lust is a very serious um, perversion of God's design. And God takes that pretty serious. And He wants us to deal with it. And so I think whatever you can do externally to help you pursue God's design, I would do it. That may mean taking every TV out of your house. That may mean canceling cable. That may mean not having a computer. And you may say, Ron, how can you survive without a computer? Hey, you do what you need to do. You know, Yes, you will give up convenience, but if it's going to help you pursue Christ and God's design, then you should do it. This may mean stop your reading fantasy novels or watching certain TV shows if it's causing you to move down that path. This may mean taking a break from social media. You know, only you know what's taking you down this path. And for me, it could be one thing. For you, it may be another Another way to disarm lust is to, as one theologian said, he said, any man who hopes to rid himself of lust must learn to pursue love with fervency. I love that. If you want to deal with lust, you need to learn to love. Because the more we lust, the less we love. And the more we love, the less we lust. And that's why being in Christ is... It's, it's the answer to deal with this because it shows us what love is and how to love both God and others. And we no longer use people as objects for our own pleasure, 
but we seek their good, their well-being, whether they're in Christ or not. Whether they're in front of us, in person, or on a screen. You know, we want to love people. And Christ shows us how to do that. So one of the ways we disarm lust is we learn to, we learn to love. And then I want to conclude by answering this question. And this is, this is the question. What if I fall into lust, Ron? What if I sin? Then what? You know, I've done all what you said, but I still, I've fallen. I've, you know, I've looked at this. I've done this. Now what? I want to answer that question by reading to you C.S. Lewis's answer to that question. And this is what he says. He says, after each failure, ask forgiveness. Pick yourself up and try again. Very often what God first helps us towards is not the virtue itself, but just this power of always trying again. For however important chastity or courage or truthfulness or any other virtue may be, this process trains us in habits of the soul, which are more important still. It cures our illusions about ourselves and teaches us to depend on God. We learn on the one hand that we cannot trust ourselves even in our best moments. And on the other, that we need not despair even in our worst, for our failures are forgiven. The only fatal thing is to sit down content with anything less than perfection. I mean, I love the answer. He's saying, if you sin, you cling to God's forgiveness for you in Christ, and then you try again. And then you try again. And then you try again. But never be content with your failure. In other words, never be content with this is just the way I am. God can't ever move me beyond this. Lewis says, don't be content with that. You just keep giving yourself to God. Keep confessing your sin. Keep resisting that pride that says, you know, this is the way it is. I can't do this. I can do this. But cling to Christ because He wants to do a work in you. He offers you forgiveness. Don't ever put a limit on what God can do with you. Okay? But if you fall, ask for forgiveness and allow God to make you into the person He wants you to be. Let us pray together. God, we thank You for Your Word and it ser- how it serves as an instrument panel. Not that we can earn Your love by doing this or that or the other, but it teaches us that Your love is beyond anything we can imagine. We can't even comprehend the depths of Your love. But we know that once You set Your love upon us, which is evident by what You've done for us in Christ, there is no removing it. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing can separate us from Your love, God. Because we didn't earn it. You set it upon us, God. And we are so thankful for that. Help us now. If we are in Christ, help us to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Help us to seek out Your design. And we know in Your Word that it is for our best that we do that. This is what we're made for. And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know You, God, that You would 
first of all, just convict them of that. Help them to see the beauty of what Christ has done and who He is. And Lord, help them to run to You and receive Your grace, Your forgiveness, Your love, Your mercy. And help them to start this new journey with You this morning. Lord, we thank You. We praise You for Your forgiveness, Your goodness, Your patience with us. And that You are always interested in receiving us, forgiving us, and moving us forward in our walk with You. And we praise You for that. In Jesus' name, Amen.